hardheads, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. Welcome to the Hardheaded Sports Podcast, episode number 44, hosted by me, Nick Ryan. And the last time that you saw me, I said I was packing up for vacation. I was excited and ready to go. I said, hey, I've got a vacation to get to. Let's pack up the show. Let's post everything and let's go on and get out of here. Super excited. And I got sunburnt. I got, you know, a, a gash on my nose from all the peeling. I got sunburnt. I got a lot of exercise, but uh, I also got sick. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, irony is not lost on me. Because if you recall, I was not feeling so good the week before leaving on this vacation. I felt like I was having an allergy attack. And I, I was able to mostly clear that up. And, you know, the sole purpose of this vacation was for me and my family to celebrate the fact that we were all completely vaccinated for the coronavirus. We had all completed our vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, uh, between, you know, the entire family, and we all wanted to go and spend some time with each other. We had not been able to spend time with each other in a long time. We had birthdays to celebrate. We had graduations to celebrate, or not graduation, excuse me. We had anniversaries to celebrate, so we had a lot of occasions to celebrate, and uh, the chief among that was being the celebration that we basically had beaten the pandemic. We've gotten the entire way through without being sick, and now, although there is a chance that we still may get it with us being fully vaccinated you know even if we do get it it's going to be significantly um lightened in, in terms of how severe the sickness is so you know we, we were super happy about it we went on vacation to disney world to celebrate you know th this this i don't want to say immunity because that's childish and and frankly not true but the fact that we were all vaccinated we were going to celebrate and <laughs> i got sick the last night and you know it, it it's really sad and my pride is definitely hurt in some capacity but the fact that we went to disney world to celebrate the fact that we could not get sick from this pandemic yet i end up getting sick to a common cold the last night that we were there. Now, maybe it was just a super harsh allergy attack. It was the flower festival at Epcot, uh, which a bunch of flowers might have just completely uh, bombarded my senses all at once, and it, it could have been it could have been completely ugly. But I just had a feeling that I caught some snotty three-year-old's uh, head cold uh, on the last day. So that's why there hasn't been any shows recently is because, once again, I've been super nasally and congested and whereas last time, you know, a Zyrtec could have completely fixed it and I just wasn't feeling so well. This time, no, I, I seriously have the sniffles and I'm not going to sound good on uh, the podcast. I'm going to come across as nasally, super congested, and that's just not fun to listen to and that's not fun for me to put up with. So we put shows on the back burner and here we are with the first show in about over a week. I think I'm over a week now. I think the last show was last Thursday. We're on Saturday today. So, uh, again, I apologize for that. Uh, the irony is not lost on me. It's a, it's a truly ironic situation, but now hopefully we're back and we're ready to go. You can still hear some congestion in my nose a little bit, and I do have a slight cough, so there may be some awkward cuts during the course of this podcast. But, uh, man, I, I can't believe that I went on vacation to celebrate the fact that I cannot get sick from COVID-19 anymore. You know, we're fully vaccinated, and I end up getting a head cold. But, you know, sometimes life just likes to mess, you, mess with you like that, and we've got a lot of stuff to catch up on today, so let's go ahead and get into it. Let's start off with the Julio Jones trade talk uh, that kind of surfaced over the past couple of days. Kind of weird in the sense that Julio Jones was on the Undisputed Show with Shannon and, and Skip Bayless, 
And uh, apparently he didn't know that he was being recorded when he said this, but he said in response to the rumors that Atlanta was trading him that he is wanting out of Atlanta. He is for sure gone. He's not coming back to Atlanta. And part of me, the football fan, is a little bit disappointed, you know, because I really, really was looking forward to Kyle Pitts and Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley all being on the same field together for Atlanta. I felt like that would have just been an offensive masterpiece to watch, and that would have been exciting television. But apparently, Julio Jones doesn't like fun. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I, I'm sure he probably is 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 sick with you know not being able to get back to the playoffs since you know obviously that one Super Bowl and. It, it, it's it's unfortunate for, for football fans that we won't be able to get to see the Julio Jones-Kyle Pitts uh, combination. But now that we do know that, that Jones is going to be traded, I, I, I want to take a look at what I think are his best destinations, his best landing spots, because reportedly Atlanta has been receiving a bunch of calls for Julio. They've got a bunch of offers. Teams have reportedly offered as much as a first-round pick for Julio Jones, which is in incredible considering the fact that he is 32. He does have 12,896 receiving yards, 60 touchdowns, and 848 receptions in 10 years in the league his 848 receptions are good for third most among active receivers in the NFL and reportedly as well uh, the New England Patriots are the favorites to land Julio Jones supposedly which if that's the case oh my god um I <laughs> that is a scary thought for the AFC uh, if Julio Jones ends up going to a completely revamped New England Patriots offense. And if you want to talk about big expenditures for Bill Belichick in revamping this offense, I feel like Julio Jones would be the cherry on top. He's got a $15 million price tag on him, uh, especially after the June 1st designation. I think that number comes down a little bit, but uh, Nelson Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, uh, Nikhil Harry, uh, Jacoby Myers, and Julio Jones. You know, that's a pretty damn good receiving core. Obviously, it's a little bit top-heavy with Julio Jones and and Nelson Aguilar, which Nelson Aguilar is a third you know, wide receiver in most cases. Hey, doesn't matter. If, if you're Cam Newton or Mac Jones with this type of talent coming in to play with in comparison to what Cam Newton had last year, even if Julio Jones doesn't go to New England, that's still a much improved offense, not to mention the two tight ends. I almost completely forgot about uh, uh, John U. Smith and Hunter Henry as well. You know, that's an incredible offense to go with, and that's just going to be incredibly difficult to stop uh, next year for the New England Patriots if that goes through. But whereas the New England Patriots are the favorites to land Julio Jones, I've got a couple other teams that I have on the list here as potential suitors for Julio Jones that I think make a lot of sense. And I kind of just wanted to run through it really quickly to start the show today and talk about why I think that these destinations would be good for Julio Jones now. I think an important distinction to make is that Julio Jones has said that he wants to go to a contender. His problem with the Atlanta Falcons is not, you know, love lost or anything. It's the fact that they have not been able to compete ever since they lost in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. It's been hard for them to get back. They've been bottom of the barrel in the NFC South for a couple of seasons now. It's been rough going in Atlanta and Julio Jones has had enough. He's getting to that point in his career where he probably would want to move on to greener pastures to try and get himself a ring before all is said and done. So as I said, I did have a small group of teams here that I think would be a good destination for Julio Jones and our viable trade partners. And to start it off, I think that the Detroit Lions are a really good selection for 
uh, Atlanta and Julio Jones. And we've just finished talking about Detroit in the last show and why I'm so excited for what, you know, Dan Campbell and the Detroit Lions have in store and what they're going to be doing in the future. The one thing that I did nitpick and point out, though, is that they didn't really address their wide receiver need in the NFL draft like I thought they would. They had Penny Sewell fall to them fall to them at seven. I had them mocked to take a wide receiver in that case. Hell, if Panay Sewell didn't fall to them at seven, I imagine that they probably would have taken a wide receiver. Detroit has lost Kenny Galladay, they lost Marvin Jones Jr., and they lost Mohamed Sanu as well. Detroit is in desperate need of wide receiver help, and not only do they have multiple first-round picks to be able to give to Atlanta, if the price tag was that much, obviously if you know the reported uh, offer so far has been that it's been one first-round pick, so they do have first-round picks to give up and still have a plethora left over from the trade uh, for, or, or excuse me, with Matthew Stafford. And the L.A. Rams, not only do they have the, you know, the required haul that Atlanta might find attractive, but heck, they need a wide receiver, and that's the biggest need for the Detroit Lions right now, arguably. So that makes sense. I don't think that Julio Jones would exactly be thrilled to be going to Detroit, because it's not exactly like they're a contending franchise at the moment, but that's option number one. Option number two is the Baltimore Ravens. Julio Jones and Sammy Watkins together sounds like an extremely scary starting wide receiver combination. And the Ravens are a playoff contender. The Ravens were mostly unable to get a, uh, a free agent wide receiver. They got Sammy Watkins in late, but there still is room for improvement. Again, Ravens were last in the league last year when it comes to uh, their wide receiver efficiency. So Julio Jones obviously would make it that much better. And again, the Ravens are a playoff contender. So when it comes to Julio Jones's wishes of going to a playoff contender, not only are the Ravens in the AFC East, which obviously if you're Atlanta, you do not want to be trading Julio Jones to an NFC team if you can help it. Not only are the Ravens in the AFC East, Julio Jones and Sammy Watkins sounds like a scary combination. Lamar Jackson is probably a fun quarterback to play for. I imagine that Julio Jones added to the Ravens offense would make them incredibly scary. Uh, they are up. Option number two. Option number three is the Colts for essentially the same reason as the Ravens, but a little bit different when it comes to the court of acquisition. You're bringing in Carson Wentz, who is going to need a revamped, and basically he's going to need all the help that he can get to really deliver Indianapolis to higher highs than they got last season. They do have Ty Hilton, Paris Campbell, uh, uh, Michael, I can't, I can't remember the last game, the last guy's name to, for the life of me at the moment. But uh, the Colts do have some wide receivers there. Uh, T.Y. Hilton, especially adding Julio Jones, would be a great weapon for Carson Wentz. They're a playoff contender. The Colts didn't spend too, too much in free agency last season, like they, like I thought they would. So they are going to have the money to be able to spend and 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 take on Julio Jones's contract. Uh, I don't know whether or not they would be able to be willing to give up the first round pick that's being asked for Julio Jones. But again, for the same reason that you would want to go to the Ravens and why Atlanta would want to trade him to the Colts, it's a team in the opposite conference. They're able to take on the contract easily enough. They probably have some draft capital left over to be able to give you enough for Julio. And if you're Julio, Wentz is... I don't think he's that great of a quarterback, but obviously that's a little bit of recency bias, but Wentz is going to need a weapon. You're going to have familiar or, or, or at least equally as reliable wide receivers there in T.Y. Hilton, Paris Campbell, and the like. And, you know, it's a playoff contending team, so Colts are number four. Number five, the Panthers... And again, the Panthers, your interest in Julio Jones is that you're going to need to give Sam Darnold weapons. Sam Darnold never really had any weapons in 
New York. Now, Carolina does already have some weapons. They do have, um, oh my goodness, uh, Robbie Anderson. I almost completely blanked on that as well. And they do have DJ Moore, Christian McCaffrey. Julio Jones would be that vertical threat for Sam Darnold to throw to. The Panthers are probably the least likely option. I think they would be interested in Jones to replace Samuel, who went to Washington on the offseason. But the Panthers do need to get a weapon for Sam Darnold, and uh, or at least an advanced weapon for Sam Darnold. And I think that it would be a pretty viable um idea for the Panthers to go after Julio Jones. I just don't think that the Panthers, A, are going to be willing to spend that much money and that much draft capita after they already spent a lot of draft capita to go and trade for Sam Darnold. It's just a fun idea to give Darnold an extra weapon, and he they also are in the same division. So, logically speaking, it's a fun idea, and I think it would be a good destination for Julio, but there's no way that the Atlanta Falcons are trading him within the division. The last team that I have on the list is the 49ers, and the 49ers are a fun one because not only are they Super Bowl contenders, they are probably going to be one of the best teams in the league next season, but the prospect of Julio Jones reuniting with Kyle Shanahan is, ooh, that's money. That's that's such a good-sounding proposition. And they are a little bit dry on draft picks momentarily. They would probably have to give some kind of combination of a second, third round, or fourth round, a, a, a multi-pick package to Atlanta for them to be able to bite on it. Uh, also, a big negative is that they're in the NFC. And again, Atlanta have said that they don't want to trade him within conference. But again, uh, Julio Jones wants to go to a contender. The 49ers are absolutely Super Bowl contenders. It would make them absolutely deadly. Imagine being Trey Lance inheriting not only um, uh, Debo Samuel, but Brandon Ajuk as well, and then Julio Jones, and then, you know, as well, George Kittle. Great offense to inherit, and I think Julio Jones would be very, very fascinating in San Francisco. So that's kind of the small group of teams that I have that seem viable, but or, or at least would be fun to see Julio Jones uh, it, be traded to that team. So again, Detroit, Baltimore, Indianapolis, Carolina, and the 49ers. Where would you like to see Julio Jones land? Uh, again, I feel really, really saddened by the fact that, you know, we're not going to be able to see Julio Jones and Kyle Pitts play together on the same field. But, hey, if you're Atlanta, you Kyle Pitts is probably a generational talent at tight end, could play the wideout position as well. So you do have a, gen, a, a pretty decent replacement for Julio Jones. I just would have rather had them being, you know, teammates instead of one being the replacement for the other. So kind of sad. But where would you like to see Julio Jones go to? Do you have any preferences? Do you agree with my selections? Let me know. I'm interested to see where he's going to be going. We're going to be finding out in the next couple of days because June 1st is just right around the corner and we might have some spicy trades coming up very, very soon. Before we move on to some NBA talk on the show today, I do want to quickly talk about Tua Tung Viola and the Miami Dolphins and some of the comments and some hate that Tua has been getting for some comments that he made during his OTA interview. Can the Tua slander stop? Um, I don't. I don't want to just kind of blatantly throw out my position like that. But the Tua Tonga Viola slander needs to stop. I think that this bad press that he's getting, the quote unquote bad look that he's been getting, is completely unnecessary and unjustified, and is a media twist on what should be a pretty standard and honest comment. And you know, part of me wishes that Tua Tonga Viola wasn't so honest. And let me actually backtrack a little bit. If you don't know what I'm talking about. During his OTA interview over the past few days, Tua Tungviola, quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, essentially said that not only was his hip not 100% last year, but he also was not comfortable with the playbook that the Miami Dolphins were running. 
He wasn't comfortable calling audibles at the line of scrimmage. He wasn't comfortable in pre-snap and post-snap reads. He wasn't comfortable with checkdowns. He wasn't comfortable with any of it. Uh, and Tua basically came out and said that in his interview. And there's been a new wave of Tua slander. I don't want to necessarily call it Tua hate, but the media has taken his comments and completely construed it into another situation in which... You know, it, it's all about, wow, you can understand why the Dolphins were looking to move on from Tua. Or, wow, the Dolphins probably are upset with Tua. I mean, Tua, a top five pick in the NFL draft last year, not even learning the playbook for the Miami Dolphins. You see what I'm getting at here? People have been misconstruing that comment or misconstruing that interview that, A, Tua wasn't very confident or he's not a confident person. A whole bunch of wild BS that's kind of being misconstrued by these comments, and that's why I say that even though I'm really impressed with Tua Tungaviola's honesty and his maturity, I kind of wish that he wasn't that honest. Even though it does major things for, you know, you're getting in with your teammates and the respect that you get from your organization, it's great for getting in with your coaches, it's great for getting in with your GM, it's great for getting in with your teammates, but it opens yourself up to some criticism that you should not be getting. Uh, especially in comparison to, you know, everybody's going to point to Burrow and Herbert because that's just the comparison that two is going to have to live with for as long as he's in the NFL is how he stacks up to Herbert and uh, Burrow in their first years in the NFL as well. It's kind of like that if you've ever played a Fallout video game, for those of you who are gamers out there, if you've ever played a Fallout video game, and specifically I'm thinking of Fallout 4 in my head, where, you know, based on your actions and your responses in-game, depending on the companions that you have, your responses to, you know, certain events in the game will kind of give you brownie points or, or, or raise companion stats or something like that. It's kind of like that, and, and whenever you get a response, you know, there will be a text that pops up on the right-hand corner like so-and-so like that or everybody like that. I feel like that's kind of what's going on here. It's like Tua says that he wasn't really comfortable with the playbook and that it's his fault. Everybody on the Dolphins like that. And then on the bottom, it's like everybody in the media dislike that. It's kind of what it feels like to me. Like for me, his comments didn't, didn't show any signs of weakness or unconfidence or that, you know, the Dolphins should be concerned that he didn't know the playbook or that he didn't spend more time learning the playbook. For me, it put the entire Dolphins season into perspective. For a guy that, you know, went 6-3 and three as a starter with the Dolphins, he didn't have any OTAs, he was recovering from a hip injury, and he still wasn't comfortable with the playbook. To understand that he went 6-3, and three, and sure, a lot of it is the fact that the Dolphins had a Super Bowl caliber defense and the roster overall was pretty talented last year. Sure, you know, that has a lot to help with Tua, but overall, it, it makes you understand why the Dolphins went back and forth between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Tua Tungviola. It makes sense why Tua was pulled from some of those important games. Namely, I think the one that everybody thinks about is when he got pulled in the Las Vegas Raiders matchup, where Fitzpatrick had that gigantic heave down the field to Ryan Collins while his face was being torn apart by uh, a Raiders defender, you know. Some of the games that Tua was pulled out of, now it makes sense why the Dolphins were so willing to pull Tua out of the game. It wasn't a benching. It was the fact that Tua did not understand the playbook well enough to be able to perform in primetime in clutch moments. And that's why Fitzpatrick was there. And that's why when you, you know, you looked at that dynamic, everybody was kind of curious as to why the Dolphins were so willing to yank Tua from the game and why he didn't seem too upset when it happened and why that dynamic with Fitzpatrick and Tua seemed to work so well. So, you know, 
A lot of the media want to take the comments as saying, well, look, it's it's kind of a bad thing that Tua didn't understand the playbook or that he didn't take the time to, you know, learn the playbook in his rookie season. That's probably kind of one of the things that you're supposed to do your rookie year. I'm taking a look at it as saying, wow, these comments are not only extremely honest, mature, and insightful into what that locker room and what that culture is like in Miami, but it paints a picture as to why things happened last year with the way that they did. And the Dolphins, again, and I've said this a couple times on the show already, the Dolphins if the AFC East weren't so strong last year, they would have been a playoff team. And with the added format this year, they also might be a, a, a playoff team. But I don't know that AFC East is looking really strong. But it's time for the Tua slander to stop. I'm tired of the media, you know, taking things and twisting them. It, it, it's clear to me more than ever that or, or the reasons why the Dolphins are so infatuated with Tua Tonga Viola. It's why that even though there was talk about him being traded for Deshaun Watson or they're drafting another QB in you know the draft that just happened a, a, a month ago. You know, even with all that media circus, with people saying, oh, maybe now Aaron Rodgers is going to come to Miami, it makes sense to me why the Dolphins are infatuated with Tua, and it, it makes me excited for the future in Miami and for Miami Dolphins fans to have a quarterback that not only loves the franchise, loves the culture, but is so open and honest with everybody. There, There's no BS flying around, and not only do the fans appreciate it, the team has to appreciate it as well. It's time for the Tua slander to stop. It's time to mis- It's time to stop misconstruing his comments for my fellow folks in the media and for, uh, I guess, <laughs> people that just don't like Tua Tonga Viola. It's time to stop the Tua slander. He's an honest kid. He's going to continue to work hard. And I think the, his comments really just showed his maturity, his willingness to admit mistakes. And it explains where the Dolphins are at with Tua and why they're so high on him and where they're at going forward. Moving on to some basketball, Game 4 between the Clippers and the Mavericks is going to be taking place tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I think the biggest story for me, or the most interesting story, rather, of the NBA playoffs so far has been this Clippers versus Mavericks series. And I'm sure if somebody held a gun to your head and said, hey, choose the more interesting NBA playoff uh, or round one series, I'm sure you get a lot of Atlanta versus New York, Utah versus Memphis. Uh, Portland versus Denver, you'd probably hear those pop up more often than you would the Clippers versus the Mavericks, but I think everybody is so interested in this Clippers versus Mavericks series in kind of the speculation of what is going to happen to the Clippers if they do end up uh, losing this series after uh, forfeiting a 3-1 lead to Denver last year. If the Clippers end up losing this series, I think every you know basketball fan around the world apart from the LA Clippers fans are kind of just looking at their chops and, and looking, you know, grabbing their popcorn and their and their soda drinks and saying, oh, this is going to be a show. Uh, I think that's why everybody is so fascinated with this series. That's certainly a factor as to why I'm fascinated in this series, but I was interested in the series coming into it purely because of what was going on in the Clippers side of things. They they dodged the Lakers in the first round by losing their last two games, and I don't want to hear any uh, load management BS, even though that's probably part of it, and that's like a half-truth. Uh, you definitely don't think that the, Clip, uh, that the Clippers wanted to meet the Lakers in round one. I feel like the Clippers needed to have a step-up series, and when the Mavericks just blew past them in the first two games, it blew the Clippers back to their back against the wall, and now it's a situation in which it's a 2-1 series. If the Clippers are able to win Game 4, you got a real series, and I think that the Mavericks are seriously in trouble. 
but I was thinking about, you know, how the first three games went, and I thought, hmm, you know, maybe it was always supposed to be this way. You know, you're thinking about what's wrong with the Clippers, why are they performing so poorly? Well, first of all, the Mavericks just absolutely shot the lights out from under uh, the Clippers in games one and two. The Mavericks were one of the bottom half teams in the league when it came to three-point shooting percentage in during, you know, during the regular season, and they were shooting 53% from three-point range. I wasn't exactly sure about which spot they were exactly, but they were definitely not this accurate from three-point range during the season, and they came out and absolutely smoked the Clippers. So you would imagine that the Mavericks had to cool off at some point. But... For me, it's always been an above-the-shoulders issue for the Clippers. I don't think that they're well-coached. I think Ty Lue is kind of a bum. Actually, if you want to talk about a defining moment in Game 3, the defining moment in Game 3 for me was when Ty Lue was just sitting on the score table, arms crossed. Marcus Morris just fouled out, and Ty Lue looked like he was envisioning what he was going to have for breakfast next morning. He was completely zoned out, and two of his assistants had to yell at him, and I think somebody actually came up and kind of shook him on the shoulder to try and not only understand who he wants to replace in the game to replace Marcus Morris, but how many timeouts he has, what's the situation in the game. Ty Lue just looked completely out of it. Um... LeBron James definitely made Ty Lue look a lot better than he actually is. So I, I don't think they're well coached. I think I would definitely take Doc Rivers with this team as opposed to Ty Lue. But that's neither here nor there. That's in the past. That's a what-if situation. Who's to say that a Doc Rivers coach Clippers team wouldn't be behind 2-1-2 a Mavericks team in the same situation here? I just think Doc Rivers is a better coach. But regardless of that, you know, I, I was thinking about how the first three games went. And I said, hmm, you know, maybe this is exactly what the Clippers needed. And this was the only way that they were going to find success. And I know that sounds a little bit weird because you say, huh, going down two games to nothing is a good way to have success. I mean, obviously it's not. But... With the Clippers having an above-the-shoulders issue, it's a confidence issue. Pandemic P has confidence issues, and uh, you know Kawhi Leonard hasn't always been the leader that he's needed to be at sometimes. And the rest of the roster has always kind of felt to me like they had some confidence issues at some time at, at times, and you know, in other times they they felt like they didn't. Game three was a time when they didn't. Uh, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard played nearly perfect, nearly perfect games. But in a situation in which you're coming into the playoffs after losing uh, or after losing a series against the Nuggets last year with a 3-1 lead, you can imagine why if they're resting players to lose the last two games to avoid the Lakers, then the Clippers probably needed a step-up series with the Mavericks. And they needed a team like the Mavericks, in which the Clippers theoretically are talented enough to afford to go down 2-0 to where they can get that reality check, they can get their backs pushed against the wall and say, okay, it's time to stop messing around, it's time to play some actual good basketball, and then they kind of get themselves together. Because again, I don't feel like the coaching is very good, I feel like any success that the Clippers have, it's going to be due to the success of Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and the defense that the Clippers have there. Um, I feel like it, the players needed to be shooken up, pushed back against the wall and said, okay, now it's time for us to carry this team out of the series. The coaching staff isn't going to do that for us. Um, and, and I think that's what we might see. Look, if the Mavericks win game four, the series is over and this take is completely hogwash. And well, I guess everything that I'm saying about the Clippers is wrong. But when analyzing and thinking about why the series has gone the way that it has so far, apart from the Mavericks just shooting the lights out and shooting an ungodly efficient percentage, 
I really feel like it was an above-the-shoulders issues for the Clippers. I feel like they needed to go down 0-2 to be able to find success. Because imagine if they did play the Lakers in the first round. You go down 2-0 to the Lakers, you're not winning that series. But if you go down 2-0 to the Mavericks, you have time to kind of collect yourself, come back, and play a better series and get yourself kind of warmed up for a better matchup down the road. And... Is it possible that the Mavericks close out the series? Absolutely. Kristaps Porzingis needs to play much better. He looked completely absent-minded in Game 3. Luka Doncic dropped 44, and that still wasn't enough for the Mavericks to win. Uh, Mavericks need some more help from the surrounding cast, like they did in Game 1 and 2 to be able to win Game 4. If they do win Game 4, like I said, it's over and the stake is completely hogwash. But again, as I said, when thinking about the first three games of the series and why things have gone the way that they did and everything that happened with the Clippers side of things coming into the playoffs and how they played, it's a coaching issue. It's, hey, I think they needed some time to warm themselves up and give themselves a bit of a confidence boost. And I, I know what you're saying. How does going down 0-2 give yourself a confidence boost? When you go down 0-2 and you have your back against the wall and you need a win and you get a win, that is where the confidence boost comes from so it's going to be interesting to see if the Clippers can turn it around obviously if they do end up coming back and winning the series against the Mavericks I think the Clippers are going to be in a much better position confidence wise than if they just kind of steamroll through the Mavericks and just kind of downplayed their victory against the Mavericks saying oh well that's the Mavericks and now we have to play a real team and imagine you know them going down 0-2 in the next series I, I guess all that I'm trying to say is is that maybe going down 0-2 was necessary for the Clippers to have any success during the postseason. And I know somebody somewhere out there is saying, like, Nick, you're an idiot for thinking that going down 0-2 is good for any team. But, hey, you know, sometimes you need to be punched in the face a little bit before you can actually get that adrenaline in you to fight back. And maybe that's exactly what the Clippers needed moving forward. Um, I, I'm just going to go ahead and talk about this series, actually. I, I was going to put it off to a different show, but the, the series is already over, so, you know, there's no reason for me not to talk about it now. Uh, Milwaukee Bucks versus Miami Heat. Milwaukee with a 4-0 sweep of the Miami Heat. Very interesting series in the aspect that it's almost like these teams completely flipped positioning as opposed to last year. Last year, you know, Miami was... Uh, quote-unquote considered an underdog. They were mentally prepared. They were mentally tough. Obviously, say what you want about the bubble and the different environment that that had uh, for the NBA teams, but uh, last year, Milwaukee looked underprepared. They looked tired. They looked like they were just interested. Giannis couldn't buy a bucket in, in you know clutch moments when he needed to. And whereas opposed to this year, they could definitely make the case that that was the Miami Heat. Miami looked tired, unprepared, disinterested, and they shot the ball poorly. Um, the Heat shot 36% in Game 1, 40% in Game 2, 38% in Game 3, and 44% in Game 4. That's just not going to win you very many basketball games. And sure, Milwaukee is a great team defensively, but with... An offense like the Miami Heat has, where Bam Adebayo is a very dynamic player, he seems very timid to shoot the ball at times. Tyler Hero was nowhere to be found. Uh, Hero actually shot 12 from 38, 31% from the field throughout the entire series. And Jimmy Buckets had, I, I didn't run the numbers on Butler, but he had an equally as, I guess, I don't want to necessarily use the word dis depressing, disappointing is probably the better word. He had an equally as disappointing series as Hero did. And, you know, Duncan Robinson can't do everything um, 
Miami just didn't look offensively prepared. They didn't look energized. And I'm sure you can make the case that, hey, look, Miami being in the finals last year, they had the least uh, time during the offseason. They struggled with injuries throughout the season. They struggled with COVID throughout the season. Were they really ever going to be challenges for the Milwaukee Bucks, who seem to have a pretty solid and consistent season the entire way through? Drew Holiday, the addition of him, just makes this Milwaukee team better defensively, and he'll give you 20 and 10 a night. And look, if you look at it from that perspective, rather, the Miami Heat never stood a chance against Milwaukee in this series. Not only is it a revenge series, which nine times out of ten you should take the revenge in a revenge series or a revenge game. So not only was this a revenge series for Milwaukee, they come in motivated. You kind of got the sense that Miami was just really, really tired and unable to keep up and obviously that fatigue might have forced them to not shoot the ball so well again 36% in game one 40% game two 38 in three and 44 in four and you know it's kind of an interesting idea about fatigue when it comes to the Miami Heat because the LA Lakers are on the opposite side of things, and they appear to be playing the best basketball that they've been playing all season. Uh, they they are absolutely manhandling the Suns over in their series in the Western Conference. So it's like, okay, well, how much can you really put the blame on conditioning and COVID when it comes to Miami Heat? Realistically speaking, I think you could put a decent amount of emphasis on that. But you know, when it comes down to X's and O's, and I know that's a football term, when it comes down to X's and O's, look, you take a look at the two teams. Milwaukee is a drastically different team than they were last year. Drew Holiday makes them so much better. Uh, Chris Middleton and Giannis Antetokounmpo, instead of being a solidified one and two, it's almost like Giannis is the one, and with all the pieces around it, it's a collective two, and Chris Middleton can just kind of vibe and play the game that he wants to. Uh, he doesn't have to shoot the basketball. He's not, or he does. He's not forced to shoot the basketball. Rather, it just seemed like Milwaukee was better prepared, better equipped. It was a completely different team. And realistically speaking, if you thought that the series was going to go any other way than it actually did, um, I'd be, <laughs> I, I'd be questioning you a little bit. Uh, and that sucks to say because I was born and raised a Miami Heat fan. I, obviously, I don't have any bias when it comes to the hard-headed sports podcast. But realistically speaking, the Miami Heat just did not stand a chance against the Milwaukee Bucks in this series. Again, revenge series, you take the revenge and the fact that Milwaukee is defensively just a, a much better team than last year. Drew Holiday makes the team so much better uh, over Eric Bledsoe. Giannis seemed to be able to do whatever he want, got out to early leads, and, you know, once Milwaukee gets out to an early lead and they don't have to shoot their way past you, uh, it's very difficult to come back from, and the Miami Heat just looked completely lost, tired, disinterested, and they kind of just laid down like a dog, which is very anti-Miami-esque. It was very against the culture, especially the culture that Jimmy Butler likes to instill in the teams that he plays for. Uh, it, it was just uh, a disappointing series. I, I would have hoped that it was a closer, but uh, when you look at, you know, the factors going into it, how much rest that the Bucks had uh, throughout the season, as opposed to the Heat, which had injuries and COVID throughout the season and a, um, a shorter off season, you can, you can argue that the fatigue is what finally caught it to the Miami Heat, apart from the fact that Milwaukee was just a better basketball team. Um, so, I was going to talk about that series on a later show, but since it's already done, I was expecting it to go uh, six games, but uh, it went four. And I, uh, if you're a Milwaukee Buck fan, I'm sure you're feeling really happy right now uh, that your Bucks got 
the revenge. It's going to be interesting to see if they take on Boston or Nets in the second round. Uh, I, I would imagine it's going to be the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Kevin Durant versus Giannis Antetokounmpo is about to be Godzilla versus King Kong <laughs> of the basketball world. Um, so... Milwaukee gets a couple of weeks or at least one week of an extra rest before they take on the Nets and that is going to be the series to watch and with that being said we are done with the show for today thank you so much for listening on whatever platform you're listening or watching on it was a fantastic show I had a really good time I hope you had a good time listening this has been episode number 44 of the hard-headed sports podcast we'll be back later with another edition another episode of the show And with that being said, my name is Nick Ryan. Have a great day, everybody. Stay hard-headed, but have a nice day.